newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, um, your presenters today are going to be myself, Jacob. And Felix. Good morning, everyone. So, I guess um, before we get into the kind of program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR and Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation, we like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Right, so um, I guess the kind of first kind of thing we want to kind of talk about is I guess the kind of main kind of thing that I think has been dominating um, the headlines for like the past three to four days has been um, the, these gro- the growth of these kind of far-right um, anti-lockdown protests um, that are actually still, in some sense, occurring in the city right now. I'm not sure if it's still occurring kind of today, but there's been up to 500 to 1,000 people kind of gathering, and in fact, a, gr- a, gro- a good number of them were actually gathering outside the Shrine of Remembrance. And I guess how it kind of all kind of started is it started on Monday, um, where a kind of group of construction kind of workers or um, event um, kind of organised a bit, there was a bit of a protest outside the CFMEU office. And essentially, these kind of workers were essentially kind of demanding, were uh, basically campaigning against um, against the state government introducing mandatory vaccination for the construction industry. So that's essentially in some sense, how it kind of started. And then, of course, um, as kind of reported by a number of kind of journalists, um, the, the protest then started to get very kind of violent. Um, and I think there, there is an argument that there was some a group of kind of far-right provocateurs and, and, and so on. So essentially, yes, then the protest has sort of gotten, gotten a bit bigger, um, essentially, and then essentially it's just become this sort of big sort of anti sort of lockdown kind of protest. And I guess one thing to kind of note, you know, despite the fact that, you know, clearly maybe um, it appears that there were some CFMEU kind of members um, that were involved in this protest, I think we have to make it clear that this is a big attack on the CFMEU. It is essentially, you know, essentially these protesters on Monday actually smashed the C, um, the front of the CFMEU office and the CFMEU have, um, fortunately made a statement condemning these protests as, um, violent, um, um, influenced kind of by the far right. But it's, yeah, it's very, it's, I think it's a very kind of disturbing kind of development. And I think, you know, the left needs to be, make a big stand against, um, this, this growing kind of movement because this movement clearly is anti-public health, um, anti-human. Um, uh, essentially, it is campaigning, you know, on behalf of the right wing who essentially just want to let the virus rip. Um, 
Oh, and um, and with no with no consequences. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there there is going to be a lot of action today. I noticed on my way in this morning that uh, the whole place is crawling with cops. So uh, it's a bit eerie, and they're all had you know. It feels like they're gearing up for something. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's another big one today, despite the you know the warm weather and the public holiday. It is very yeah. It's this one's quite an interesting one. It's um, there's a lot of lot of aspects to it and it's it, it's it's quite a I, I can imagine there will be a lot of confused takes on exactly what's going on here and and who's to who, who's behind these actions and what our perspective on them should be because it will, usually we are used to uh, protests by workers especially in the construction industry fighting for their rights and fighting for good conditions and in solidarity with other people. And this is a completely different type of protest. It's, yeah, it's it's coming out of the tradition of um, the uh, the far right, the QAnon type conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers and has very little to do with the with solidarity of, of left-wing workers. Mm. And I think um, some of the other kind of developments that kind of happened in, um, that have happened since then is... Um, in Melbourne, um, the co-health kind of um, vaccination hub, um, workers at that vaccination hub, this is a vaccination hub in the Melbourne CD, CBD, um, has essentially been the, the individual workers um, who have walked to their office um, or worked walked to their workplace um, in this kind of context while this protest has been going on, have <clears throat> essentially been harassed um, by these um, by these protesters, um, which I think, and of course, as a result, the co-health um, vaccination hub has temporarily closed down, along with their homelessness um, services. Which, and this, I think, this is a big kind of absolute kind of disgrace, and actually just really, I think, shows the kind of nature of the this anti-vaccination kind of movement, and this anti-vaccination movement is clearly being driven by outright right-wing kind of politics that is completely opposed to anything, any sort of principled left-wing alternative. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's um, And, and it can't be doing any, them any favours. Like, I don't think that they have a particular uh, well-honed political line here. They're attacking these these people, these workers in this clinic because they, uh, they're just against what they stand for and like they're not getting any public sympathy, I wouldn't think, out of this. And, you know, it, it can only hurt their cause. But I don't think they're very well thought through. It's they're, they're reacting. And and there are definitely agitators in there who know what they're doing and are trying to stir things up. But you never know where these things can go. Mm. And I guess, I mean, some other kind of aspects about this is... I think I think there is um, criticisms we can make of the state government in this kind of instance because, okay, so that said, I don't think we should adopt the perspective that you know just because um, just because the protesters I think are on a whole other level of right wing and I don't think we should um, just because they're opposed to the their protesting against the state government doesn't necessarily mean that that you know um, we we should put an equal sign between the state government and I think these protests, because I think these protests represent a clearly a fascistic sort of far right kind of threat to kind of society. But that said, I don't think we can, um, you know, as kind of socialists, we can't sort of let the, the state government kind of off the hook, which is essentially, you know, a state, uh, a, you know, a capitalist kind of state government. And I guess what I think some of the issues is, has been 
um, that, you know, the fact that I think, and as it's sort of being reported in um, the Green Left and the Green Left article, I think really what this kind of reflects is, I think, the kind of heavy-handed kind of bureaucratic nature by which the government has kind of approached the issues of kind of mandatory kind of vaccination. And so essentially, when they introduced this sort of um, mand- uh, mandatory vaccine mandate um, within within um, within the construction industry, they did it without any kind of consultation with, um, with the trade unions. Um, they essentially just got the chief health officer to, to kind of... Dra- set up a, a public health directive and just basically expected all the con- kind of construction workers to kind of follow suit. And I think that in some sense that has created a bit of an opening, I think, for the far right to sort of organise a sort of anti-authoritarian sort of response. Um, and I think, you know, in some sense, this potential situation could have been potentially avoided in a sense that, you know, the state government could have had adopted a much better kind of approach, which actually kind of respected more, had more respect for the autonomy of the workers kind of themselves. Um, because I think, you know, in um, some sense, I think the kind of bureaucratic sort of a way of imposing these vaccine mandates is not is not necessarily going to empower workers, and it's also not necessarily going to be a way by which you can sort of win over certain workers who might be vaccine hesitant. Because really, my position is, I think every worker should get vaccinated, but I'm sort of not necessarily convinced that vaccine mandates are sort of the best way to actually achieve that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree because, like, I like. There's a lot of discussion that I've I've heard both on the left and elsewhere about um, mandatory vaccines, and I think that it's it's very narrow-minded the idea. It's either mandatory vaccines or we just don't do anything, and that's that's false. The thing is is that there are a lot of opportunities, particularly in the construction industry where there they there is a strong union presence, to allow the union to bring in the workers and explain the importance of vaccines and bring them on their side and go through all the issues and remove all of the barriers to getting vaccinated and have a patient explanation of why they're useful and necessary. None of that, none of that was done. It would, it's just they, the state government suddenly imposed the mandate and it's extremely paternalistic. And it's, it also it goes back to this thing that we see again and again from this government. It, they're just knee-jerk authoritarians in a way. They, I know, you know, like it is a trope that you know, dictated down and everything like that, which I think is kind of a you know ridiculous thing but uh the 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 kernel of truth in that is that they they are quite condescending in the way that they feel like they can make rules and just expect everyone to follow it and use the police to back them up to make sure it happens and it's there there might be a situation in which we do need a mandate vaccines but there are so many steps before that before that becomes necessary mm. and none of those steps are taken it's just it's laziness and it's it's just yeah. police dependent and uh, there's a possible kind of fury that um the dan i mean this was sort of mentioned in the green left article and i do think this is potentially a view that you know could be contested in some way and and could open a bit of a debate but i mean one theory has been that you know the reason why the um, Andrew's government is very quick to sort of implement all these sort of um, vaccine mandates for all sorts of industries. So in addition to um, construction, they've also introduced this into teaching and, and childcare. Now, I think, you know, in terms of encouraging a higher take-up of vaccine, I mean, it's not like the worst move in the world and it hasn't triggered a necessary, a similar reaction. But I mean, the, the main thing, a fury is that um, the, the, the Andrew's government is sort of under, is under pressure to sort of open up 
as quickly as kind of possible because generally any sort of reopening um, in terms of um, COVID-19 response is generally driven by business interests and oh, business you definitely kind of pressures. See you definitely see that pressure um, on them. So I think there is a nest, uh, there is a pressure to sort of keep the state open as possible, um, to open up as quickly as possible. So vaccine mandates are probably the way to go for this. And I think, you know, the other thing as well is, I mean, if I, but I think, I think you're completely right. I think there's other means that, we could increase take up of vaccines in this immediate moment. For example, you know, um, um, bosses could be paying for manda- um, mandated um, vaccine leave. Um, the unions could be organising. Um, they could be organising vaccine pop up kind of clinics, etc., to encourage kind of workers to get vaccinated at the work yeah, site. Yeah, and just to explain what it what it all means. Yeah, patiently and not not be. Not, not tell people you must do this, but to say, okay, then this is what the vaccine does. What are your concerns? What, you know, what do you think about this? How can we ex- explain it to you? And this is why we think that getting vaccinated is so important for our industry and for society. It's, there are so many, yeah, it's, it's like, why couldn't they have, why couldn't the government have allowed that to happen? It's, you know, it, and you, it's the old saying, you get more with honey than with, um, you, know, you get more with sugar than I can't remember the rest of it, but um, you know, than than a punishment. You, you, it's more likely that you'll convince people to your side if you show them and be, you know, nice about it than just like forcing them with a stick. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Anyway, I'm just going to play. I think I'll just play a quick um, few announcements and it gets clued this discussion. Um, but yeah, we're going to be um, speaking to our presenter um, from Green Left Radio, who's currently not presenting at the moment, Zane Alcorn, who is a rank and file CFMU member. So we're going to be having a bit of discussion about him on, you know, what construction workers could be, um, should be doing kind of in this period, and especially in response to these, what's clearly uh, divisions um, within the union. So yeah, I think that's um, that's um, where where that kind of is at. So yeah, I'd like to yeah, I'll, I'll just play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself 
or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300-111-500. That's 1300-111-500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And for our first interview of the day, um, we're very happy to introduce you to Nick McLellan, um, who is um, a, who has been... Um, who is a bit of a kind of um, an expert on kind of matters um, related to um, the Pacific. And, of course, he is currently, I think, an adjunct kind of researcher with the School of Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at Swinburne University of Technology and also is um, an author of um, including some recent books on politics, I guess, in the Pacific. So good morning, Nick. Good morning, Jacob. Oh, we got uh, Felix here in the studio as well. How are you going? The first kind of question, I guess the first kind of question we want to sort of ask is, what can you tell us about the kind of implications of um, this new nuclear sub kind of de- deal um, for Australian politics? So, yeah, pass on to Felix. You, you heard that right, Nick? Yeah, look, this uh, new AUKUS partnership is actually not just about submarines. It's very much about integrating the Australian Defence Force into uh, U.S. strategies in the region. Um, and although the, the proposal to construct nuclear-powered submarines over the next 20 years has hit the headlines, there's a lot more elements in it about integrating um, Australian military forces further into U.S. nuclear warfighting strategies. Um, there's a major focus on cyber and artificial intelligence technology, um, and really giving the United States a real-time capacity um, to uh, monitor what's going on in this part of the world. Um, a lot of this is about geography, um, where the United States, and indeed possibly Britain, hope to base more um, ships and submarines uh, in Western Australia, passing through ports uh, Fremantle and Stirling and so on, um, and pre-position a lot more equipment in Australia, basically closer to uh, hotspots in East Asia. Yeah. Are you still there, Nick? Yes, I am. Yep, great. Um, do you feel like that this is, is real? Like, I, obviously, the Chinese are very upset about this. Is this the massive uh, repositioning of the strategy in terms of China that uh, it seems to be? Well, it's part of a, a picture that's been going on for a while, um, Australia has joined the United States, Japan and India in a structure called the Quad, which has been upgraded. And we've just seen, um, you know, uh, both virtual and face-to-face meetings of the Quad leaders, um, which is really uh, another structure aiming to contain China and the perception of rising Chinese influence, um, not only in East Asia, but uh, a wider uh, across uh, the Asia-Pacific region. Um, one of the problems is that this is not purely an economic, uh, a military uh, phenomenon. China is a major economic power, um, although it faces many internal contradictions, um, um, including a lot of worker resistance to Chinese austerity policies um, and uh, major financial problems within the uh, um, uh, within the Chinese state. Um, but there's a uh, you know a real attempt to try and integrate Western powers. But the brutal reality of what we've seen is France's attempts to support this increasing Indo-Pacific coordination, as they call it, uh, the containment of China in the region, 
um, didn't match the particular needs that the United States has. Um, and a lot of that's to do with uh, purely geography and uh, the capacity to deploy its forces. Um, we've seen the U.S. deployed in Hawaii and Guam, major U.S. military bases in those areas. And uh, Australia is seen as a suitable piece of real estate to assist that process. Yeah, the, um, this, is, this is the pivot to Asia that the U.S. has been talking about for a while. Um, I definitely get, I get the impression that Australia is, is being used in a way by the U.S. because of the geography that you mentioned uh, to be sort of the, the forefront of, of uh, the containment of China. And it, it seems that it's, it's really reducing our level of independence in order to, to forge our own foreign policy. And because China is our main trading partner, like we have a, a big interest in, in just keeping out of any kind of, um, I wouldn't go so far as to, to say conflict, but to any t- t- kind of antagonism between the two great powers because, you know, we're, we're so um, small and powerless compared to them. And it seems that we've, we're now hitching ourselves to the US in a way that uh, sort of pushes aside our own strategic interests in the area and just serves the interests of the US. Is this, is this a, a fair... Um, well, it's, it's, it's complex because all around the region, countries throughout Southeast Asia, throughout the Pacific Islands, uh, um, Australia, most of Europe have been juggling this contradiction between their long-term strategic alliance with the United States. And we've had one since the Second World War, which celebrated the so-called the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Treaty. Um, uh, you know, but... but uh, um, China is the major trading partner, major economic investor for many countries. And uh, so you see the mixed reaction in Southeast Asia to the AUKUS um, uh, partnership announcement. Um, countries like Indonesia and Malaysia have expressed a lot of concern that um, uh, Australia's stand, together with the United States and Britain, is adding to the militarisation of the region um, the competition, strategic competition between the United States and China in the Asia-Pacific region, and uh, a number of countries don't want any part of it. And that's particularly true of most of our Pacific Island neighbours, including New Zealand, who are very wary about the the nuclear component of this current arrangement. Um, uh, seeing the you know, potential expansion of a nuclear industry in Australia as uh, a major stumbling block efforts to keep the Pacific nuclear free. Yeah, just on, on the, the subs themselves, could you just um, uh, explain a little bit about what these subs actually do? What, what role are they expected to play in the region here? Well, first thing is they've got to build them first, and, and the first submarine, according to current projections, won't uh, come until, um, until uh, you know, 2040 or thereabouts. Um, what we'll see in the interim is both the United States and Britain will offer to uh, lease or loan submarines to Australia, um, possibly to be based in Western Australia, to train up a submarine force because we don't have any submariners or few and far between with any experience of uh, running nuclear-powered submarines. These sort of submarines are used in nuclear warfighting strategies, um, part of China's nuclear small nuclear arsenal relative to the United States is based on uh, um, uh, nuclear submarines that carry nuclear-armed missiles. Um, and so the uh, sort of submarines that have been talked about in this new deal would be involved in efforts to track 
and indeed destroy uh, Chinese nuclear submarines, uh, nuclear submarines, um, at a time of conflict. Um, they're also involved in uh, um, potentially uh, being deployed at strategic choke points uh, to uh, monitor and possibly attack uh, vessels on the sea lanes. Um, and so these are, uh, you know, future scenarios. But um, really a lot of it is, as I say, is, is not just the submarines, but it's about the real-time integration of computer and uh, information intelligence systems between the Anglosphere partners. And, um, you know, the, the very fact that it's Britain, a, a declining imperial power, uh, the United States of Australia are getting into bed together on this partnership, has raised real questions about whether um, there are alternative paths for diplomacies with our neighbours in Asia and the Pacific to address uh, the, the US-China conflict. It is a pretty grim uh, scenario that's, uh, you know, depicted with what the the uh, submarines would be used for in the terms of the the pointy end of a potential nuclear conflict. Um, and it is interesting that it's these partners in particular who are uh, historically have have had so much involvement in that region in a very negative way. Do you know what uh, what sort of response for the from the Pacific Islanders and Pacific nations um, to to this announcement? How do they feel about all of this? Look, the public response has been quite muted. A number of governments in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia and so on, have expressed concern about the militarisation of the region. Um, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand um, has um, uh, said that any nuclear-powered vessel from whatever country won't be allowed in New Zealand waters uh, or New Zealand ports. This is a long-standing policy that dates back to 1987 when New Zealand introduced nuclear-free legislation um, to uh, uh, their territory. Um, and uh, it's a bipartisan policy. Even the nationals in New Zealand aren't willing to take on uh, widespread anti-nuclear sentiment in New Zealand about this issue. Um, a number of Pacific Island countries have uh, policies really of... of Papua New Guinea has expressed this well, being friends to all, enemies to none. Um, New Guinea has strong diplomatic relations and economic ties to Australia, to the United States as well, to Japan, but also to China and to other countries. And the, um, Prime Minister Marape was interviewed this week uh, from PNG about the, the submarines question. He said, diplomatically, he said, oh, look, this is business for Australia. It's for them, it's their submarines. They can do what they want. But we, Papua New Guinea, will maintain our policy friends to all, enemies to none, which is a way of telling Canberra they're not going to turn on China, they're not going to participate in the containment of China in the Asia-Pacific region because they welcome investment from China in infrastructure uh, and, and trade and, and so on. Um, similarly, Fiji, which has, uh, uh, once again, close diplomatic ties to Australia, uh, to the United States and to China, has um, you know, kept a low profile in responding, but um, just a few weeks ago, Prime Minister Baini Marama gave a, a major speech as currently chair of the Pacific Islands Forum, and he called for uh, countries in the Pacific to sign the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. He called for the Blue Pacific to be nuclear-free Pacific. Um, he talked about the atrocities, uh, his words, not mine, nuclear testing in the Pacific, not 310 nuclear tests conducted by France, Britain, the United States in the Pacific. So there's no love of nuclear uh, weaponry in countries like 
Fiji or Nalaline Nuclear Free Vanuatu or New Zealand. Um, so this nuclear submarines uh, proposal, although as I say, it's a couple of decades down the track before it turns into reality, uh, sends the wrong signal at a time. Yeah, it definitely does seem to put the uh, Pacific nations into a, a very difficult position with regards to this in their in in terms of their relationship with both Australia and China and well, the, yeah, the Morrison government the Morrison government says it wants to be the security partner of choice with mm. the Pacific island countries um, under the so-called Pacific step up there's a major effort to expand Australia's military presence ADF presence across the region um, and and uh, you know to do training to do exercises with Pacific countries and so on but um, I think there's a wariness about the direction that uh, Australian defence and strategic policy is going. And part of that's due to the invisibility of uh, the Pacific in a lot of strategic thinking in Canberra and amongst Australian think tanks. Um, and, and uh, you know, this, this sort of decision. I think the other striking thing on this is Australia's just announced that they're going to spend billions and billions of dollars to build nuclear submarines. This comes just weeks before um, the ASCO negotiations uh, for climate change, uh, the next COP26, as it's known, in the United Kingdom. Pacific countries are calling for a massive investment um, of climate finance to assist in the transition to a low-energy economy. Um, and yet Australia is currently pro uh, providing about 12% of its fair share of the global target of climate finance, uh, recent studies have shown that it, it's only up to about 25% over the next five years of what we should be paying towards assisting countries to adapt uh, to climate change. It really, it, it's definitely showing, <laughs> definitely showing the priorities of the government there with how they spend their billions of dollars. We're going to have to wrap it up soon, but do you have any final thoughts before we uh, finish off? No, well, I think this is a really important issue for, for, for people to, to engage with at a time where... You know, there are desperate needs in Australia to invest in health services, to address the uh, economic impact of working people from the, uh, uh, the COVID pandemic, um, the, the sort of challenges we face about climate change in this country. Um, the balance of resources going to be going into these sort of defence technologies in the interests of major arms manufacturers is something we should be challenging. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's, there's a, a whole lot of, issues with this and there are so many different angles at which it's it's a very problematic decision and the way that it's sort of sprung on us in the region is uh, extremely troubling so uh, thanks for joining us Nick thanks a lot all right. Um, so you're just, we we're just, um, having a discussion with Nick McCullen, um, who is actually a bit of a, he's a bit of a commentator on, um, on matters relating to the Pacific. Um, he's also an established author who's actually recently written quite a number of books on, on a number of um, topics related to the Pacific, including, um, H-bomb testing, um, and, and so on. And then of course, yeah, he's also, he's, I think he's also currently a, a junt sort of researcher with the Swinburne University and the sort of arts kind of department. So, yeah, we had a bit of a good kind of discussion with him and, yeah, um, about the kind of the, all the implications of this kind of nuclear kind of sub deal. So, yeah, anyway, um, I'll just go play, I think I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Well, if you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. 
Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And for the next part of the program, I thought I would play um, a a recording of a Green Left podcast that has been um, done in Sydney. And this is um, titled Afghan Woman, War and the Media. So... On September the 17th, Green Left's Peter Boyle spoke to Dr. Ayicha Jenagar, who is a writer and activist currently based in Australia. And Dr. Jenagar specialises in peace journalism, digital war, online extremism and justice. And she's also worked as a journalist in Afghanistan and Pakistan and is currently writing a book about Afghan refugees and media discourses of war and conflict, which was also the topic of her PhD thesis. Um, so yeah, we'll play, we'll have a bit of, we'll play this for the, like the next 26 minutes. Um, and hope listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast. We give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Aisha Jahenga, who is a writer and academic currently based in Australia. Dr. Jahenga specializes in peace journalism and digital war, online extremism, and justice. She has also worked as a journalist in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and she's currently writing a book about Afghan refugees and media discourses of war and conflict, which was also the topic of her PhD thesis. International media coverage has long presented Afghan women as victims of the Taliban who have to be saved but the images that we are seeing of the women's protests that have continued to take place in Afghanistan after the U.S. and its allies evacuated seem to tell us a different story. As someone who has studied Afghan women and the media and who has worked as a journalist in Afghanistan, what do you have to say about this? Uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Peter, for having me on the podcast. I would like to uh, start with the acknowledgement of the country. Uh, I want to let you know that I am uh, connecting with you from the land of the Tharawal people, and I uh, want to pay my respects to the traditional uh, owners, past, present, and emerging, 
And I also acknowledge that the sovereignty of this land was never ceded. Um, thank you for that question. Uh, it has been coming up um, over social media as well. Uh, and journalists have also been raising these concerns. But I want to first let you... Um, want to take you back in 2004 and, uh, uh, and the new Afghan constitution that, of course, is now um, not um, um, in, in, in um, uh, you know, function anymore in the government. Um, so 27, under the constitution, 27 percent of the 250 seats in the House of the People were reserved for women. So, and we know that the overall situation of Afghan women had significantly improved um, during the 2000s and, and later particularly in uh, major urban areas, but those uh, living in rural part of the country still faced many problems. So the big question that journalists and uh, and people around the world are raising right now is that, um, is it that bad under the Taliban government for women? Can we trust the Taliban on women's rights? Um, as, an, as an academic, as a researcher who's, who's looking at this area, my simple answer would be no. And also that the, that the women who are coming out on, onto the streets, first of all, I want to um, acknowledge that these have to be some of the bravest, most brave women um, on the face of the earth right now to be, to be standing in the face of such an uncertain future uh, and a ruthless, ruthless um, 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 enemy of, of not only the state and of course people as well, so it is clear from the stance and the actions of the Taliban uh, over the last few weeks that women are not safe in Afghanistan. Um, women have been banned from many offices, including television. Uh, they've been, um, uh, the education has been segregated. And in many cases, they have been told that only women can teach young girls. And I want to remind you that um, which means that we want more women teachers and we want more women educators and there are not enough of them. Taliban leaders have offered um, a somewhat gentler rhetoric on women's rights in the first few weeks, but there is still a major disconnect between what they said in their TV interviews and what they are doing on the ground, um, where their commanders are enforcing um, even harsher methods to treat these women and deal with these women, um, uh, um, charging them with, with batons and, and, and uh, hitting them and pushing them and, 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 and literally threatening them with, with uh, being shot at sight. Um, so now it has become a matter of mere survival as these women and their families are at risk of not only being forced away from, from the public, but also starvation. Um, so, so yeah, just because there are some women on streets does not account for the situation in Afghanistan uh, uh, that it is any better or freer for women on ground. One of the placards that was carried in one of these women's protests in Afghanistan recently said, we are not women of the 90s. What do you understand this to mean? Well, I clearly see that this message speaks of their resilience and the extent that they're willing to go to defend their rights and not being dragged back into, into in time, um, the 90s for that matter, um, and resist the system that is exclusively dominated by warlords and tribal ed elders who have, as we know, no regard for women, their needs and their rights. Um, so the concern now is that is not that of the marginalization of women, 
It is about being pushed to the margin so hard that they ultimately disappear from the public discourse and public sphere ultimately. Yes, there are some rural women who do not feel connected to such um, urban women or elite women, if I can call that, um, nor do these women in rural areas believe that these women necessarily speak for them. But I want to remind you that these women who are, um, who are in these rural areas um, have opened their eyes in a system that never spoke to them, never spoke for them. And these women who are on the roads carrying these placards, um, not resisting and telling face to face these Taliban and other uh, allies of Taliban that we are not those women who you could shun, push to the margins. We are stronger. We know our rights more. We understand what role we can play in the society and has been playing over the last 20 years, gradually improving uh, their presence in society. Um, so these brave women representatives who are out on the roads, putting their lives literally in the line of fire, carries sufficient weight for the present and future of women and young girls in Afghanistan. Some of the women protesters have chanted slogans attacking Pakistan. Can you explain this? Uh, we all know uh, the role that Pakistan has played um, uh, in, in, the, in, in previous wars in Afghanistan and, uh, uh, and now as well. We, uh, it is not a hidden fact that Pakistan is one of the allies of the Taliban. Um, we also know the involvement of the Pakistani um, intelligence spy agency, the ISI, in, 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 uh, in um, aiding the, the takeover, Taliban takeover. And we know that there are lots of regional politics involved to it, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, having a stronghold within the region, uh, specifically because how Pakistan, Pakistan's relationships have been with India and how Afghanistan has been um, getting closer to India over the last um, 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 two decades uh, or, um, uh, or less. So, um, and we have seen there have been protests in front of the Pakistani embassy in, pa in, in Kabul um, and in other regions as well of asking Pakistan to stop its alleged um, involvement in uh, bringing Taliban into power and, and interfering in, in its um, state matters uh, and also not regarding, so basically disregarding the rights of women. We had uh, the Pakistani prime minister um, recently, in fact, just a couple of days uh, in an interview with, this, uh, with CNN um, um, express his um, ignorance of the fact um, uh, that how these women are, are, are facing these challenges and, and, and suffering and how bleak their future is in the country by saying that it is part of Afghanistan's internal matter and we must not interfere and uh, not we as in the international, um, 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 uh, you know, uh, international um, systems should not interfere and then let the Taliban handle women in their own context. I, I see this, I condemn it and I see it as an ignorance and an, an apathetic comment or a stance uh, which lacks compassion for the women of the region because this is not just the problem of of Afghan women under under under, under Taliban rule uh, this is the problem of women in any dictatorship
dictatorial uh, government that is that is um, specifically um, uh, promoted or or based on religion for that matter so the reason they have been chanting slogans against pakistan or the reason there has been this hashtag trending online on social media specifically twitter hashtag sanction pakistan is not for because there is some personal hate for the country or its people it's because they are resisting interference i i personally find most of the comments uh, by the pakistani prime minister imran khan problematic um um in um, um drenched in internalized patriarchy and misogyny uh, and also the love for power um um and i'm sure that a lot of people uh, will 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 not like me for saying that but as a researcher i can only mention the facts and and when i say this i uh, i'm basing my opinion on uh, on re- on evidence so um we all know that his comments or his stance on how women should live and how women should become part of society are even in pakistan are quite problematic we must not forget that recently um he was engaging in um uh, in in rape apologia um um victim blaming directly or indirectly um the fact that uh, uh, uh he he called he 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 had been given comments on how women should dress and um i think that he and the likes of him look at this from a very narrow and a very petty angle uh, which is which is not inclusive of uh, of 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 the rights of women not only because for the way that they want to dress up that is not the biggest problem of women in this region the biggest problem of the, of of, of uh, women in this region is inequality oppression domestic violence um you name it they have it you know in pakistan and in afghanistan and this region we have got starving widows we have underage girls that are forced into marriage we have high maternal death rates rape murder incest abductions wife beatings uh, marital rape self immolation deprivation of education burning of girls schools restricted mobility and of course or cherry on the top is forcing them uh, to wear the burqa or hide uh, their bodies um, or 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 associating the honor quote unquote with with women so yes this this, this there there the, these problems are on an inter- intersectional level um and need a deeper analysis and self reflection into how we uh, look at these and deal with these problems since the us and its allies started leaving uh, evacuating uh, from afghanistan um there have been uh, many demonstrations uh, organized by members of the afghan community in countries like australia that have taken up the question of the rights of women in afghanistan can you explain uh, the interaction between these refugee communities that have settled um outside afghanistan on uh, the the movement for women's rights in afghanistan today um that's very interesting um one of the research papers that i'm working on right now is uh, assessing the ways and methods 
that Afghan um, uh, communities in Australia uh, from the Afghan diaspora, diaspora communities are using uh, and the strategies are using to, um, uh, to to stand up for the rights of people back in Afghanistan and, and specifically also uh, women as well through digital activism. Um, there are a handful of women, yes, but again, uh, the way this entire war or conflict and relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan is reflected and portrayed in media has a lot of influence on how people feel towards each other. Um, I, as a Pakistani Pashtun woman uh, living in Australia, I am always welcomed into uh, these groups on social media. I have some of some of my very close friends are Afghans, um, Afghan uh, men and women who are either in Afghanistan right now or in other parts of the country um, or, or the world. So coming back to your specific questions about how they, yes, they, they are, but again, there are some restrictions again of, they need to know, they need to, they want to do it, but they don't know how to do it. And the problem is also of accessing and getting in touch with people back in, in, in Afghanistan uh, because of their restriction, restricted mobility, um, and access to internet as well. Um, we saw that there have been, uh, Australia has uh, 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 welcomed over 3,000 um, Afghan refugees um, and people with valid visas into Pakistan, uh, into Australia. But as, as, as part of the um, activist members and community here, I would really, really hope that Australia opens its heart and, and, ha and, and welcomes more, more, more people from that and and the Afghan diaspora here are, are are waiting and 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 hoping that they could make some contribution into the lives of these people who have just been welcomed. Uh, for instance, um, offering foster care for Afghan um, children who have arrived uh, without their families, uh, and for women who have arrived without um, support or um, uh, as families. So um, it's just the start, um, but. Yes, they, they, their spirits are high and the connection with their homeland is displayed at its best, um, specifically in the times of uh, crisis and conflict like this. One of the historical questions um, is the role that education reforms, reforms to include more women in education, um, particularly those who, that were introduced after the 1978 Sour Revolution in Afghanistan, what role did these reforms have on subsequent political developments? And are there lessons that should or can be drawn from that experience for the broader struggle of women's rights in Afghanistan and in the region? Yeah, I think that's a very substantial question because it's very important for us to know the history to be able to understand what's happening now and where can it lead us in the future. So I'll just remind um, the listeners about one of the Taliban's first acts after they swept into power in Afghanistan um, about a month ago was to force most women out of their jobs and into their homes. And I've all. So let me take you back um, a few years ago. So the idea that Afghan women should be considered full contributing members of society beyond their home was first declared by during the reign of uh, the Amir, uh, Amir Habibullah. 
Um, so what Habibullah believed was that Islam does not deny women um, the right to education and that it is an, that is, is an, an Islamic duty of the men to provide women with the opportunity to function fully in the society. You are saying this is, this is in what period of time? Um, so this is uh, the early, um, um, it's, 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 it's during the 1900s, early 1900s. So I'm taking you back about 100 years ago. Um, so Habibullah believed that Islam does not. And so therefore, having women only in the home would not benefit Afghanistan as the whole. So the reason I'm referring back to the time around about 100 years ago under Amir Habibullah is that Afghan, Afghans do not see women as some alien parts that needs to be kept inside the home. They do believe under Islamic laws and values that women would, that, that a country cannot benefit as a whole unless women become an equal part of the society. Now coming to um, uh, 1978, uh, the Saw revolution that you mentioned when it took place through which Afghan communists, the Soviet backed People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan seized power in a coup and killed President Dawood and his family in the presidential palace. Now, in during this 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 um, time after the Afghan Communist Party revolution, women again became a strong part of the working society in big cities. Now, so it, the, 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 this 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 need for women to become part of society is is old. It's not new. Um, so it, it's not that it happened just in in, in the last twenty years. Um, so the new regime. After, the, after 1978, what they did is through its women's organization announced the launch of an aspirational literacy campaign. So more than 18,000 people were recruited as instructors because they planned to eliminate literacy within one year, sorry, illiteracy within one year. Now, in reality, however, this campaign was mostly based in bigger cities like Kabul or Mazar Sharif or even parts of Kandahar. Uh, and the content of this uh, of these new textbooks reflected true Marxist doctrine. So, so the change started happening. Women started getting to know. There were women who came out and, and started getting uh, uh, active in society. Uh, but unfortunately, in the early 1980s, uh, with the direct Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan, women issues in general again took a secondary place in the agenda of the regime. Um, Islamist uh, 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 Afghan parties um, started to mobilize and gain substantial power around the country. And we, we all know what take do they have on women's rights and education. So now women in Afghanistan are worried once again. Things had started to become a bit better as I started my interview by reminding um, the listeners about uh, the, 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 the representation that women had in the parliament and in the government uh, and considered as equal members of the society under the constitution. So things had started becoming better. Uh, they were you know, getting education, they were going out, they were getting uh, um, um, uh, exposed to, to, to history, to politics, to society. Um, and so now, Women in Afghanistan are worried because a peace deal with Taliban or acknowledgement of the government under Taliban by its allies or other countries means putting women aside. That is clear into the abyss. There is no second point thought about it. You can't say, no, let's give them a chance. They will get better. No, 
they will not because that is not how their ideology works their values that they run on are do not consider women as equal by society so we know that they have in their previous rule flogged women cut their noses off to represent a loss of honor uh, they've also stoned women to death so after 20 years of on women have come back to where they had started from and this brings takes me back to again 100 years ago under habibullah's regime where where there needs to be an acknowledgement not only in afghanistan but in dire region that women are humans and that their rights and their needs matter as much as those of men i understand that different countries and different cult have different cultures they have their own ways of lifestyle um it, they can choose to cover themselves they can choose not to cover themselves but the debate is not just about women not wanting to cover themselves no afghan women do not want to uncover themselves or or because that is not how the society or the culture works what they want is to be acknowledged as humans acknowledged as an equal member of the society being given a part in the social fabric the social sphere public narrative and not being shunned to the side for ultimate um evaporation of of, of and that is where we've come from so i would like to end this response on uh, gandhi's uh, very famous quote and he says that your beliefs become your thoughts your thoughts become your words your words become your actions your actions become your habits and your habits become your values and ultimately your values become your destiny so now is a question of values and of course habits and actions and words and thoughts so it all starts from that little thought of considering empathy and considering understanding and tolerance and just acknowledging their existence the existence of women I hope you got a lot out of this episode. All right, you're listening to Green Left um radio and um you're just listening to um a Green Left um podcast um titled um Afghan I think it was Afghan Afghan woman war in the media and you can actually listen to the full podcast well we actually did play the full podcast but you can listen to the podcast on the greenleft.org.au website and um yeah and have a bit of more of a listen um, and have um rig cap it there all right so um we'll go to go play a quick announcement and we'll go on to the um green left actress calendar you're listening to green left radio We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world, and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place 
predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And now it is time for the Green Left um, Activist Calendar. Now, the first event I just want to highlight, and this is a um, public uh, public forum coming up um, that's been organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. Um, but some of our listeners might have enjoyed um, the discussion we we're sort of having um, with Nick McClellan on the on the Pacific. So there is going to be an online forum. Um, no nuclear, no nuclear, um, no nuclear subs. Voices for a nuclear free Indo Pacific. And so that's going to be happening on Tuesday, the 28th of September at 6.30 p.m. via Zoom. Um, so you can get the Zoom link if you go onto the greenleft.org.au kind of website or even just check the Green Left um, Facebook page. So, yeah, hope listeners um, enjoy. Um, and I think, um, yeah, that's the kind of next, um, that's kind of the next kind of major political event that Green Left is going to be organising. Now, I'll go into um, the next kind of part of the Green Left um, activist calendar. Now, just a, one bit of a um, bit of a plug. Um, in response to, I guess, this um, far-right sort of um, fascist kind of threat um, that's been posed with the with the anti-lockdown protest in um, in Melbourne, their um, campaign against racism and fascism have um, initiated some some sort of um, some activities that people can sort of do, um, including taking a selfie of your of yourself as a worker, saying um, pro-vax. Um, pro-union, anti-fascist. I support health workers. So there's a bit of um, there people are sort of doing um selfies and sending it to social media. So you can check up the campaign against um racism and fascism to kind of get the details of that. And of course, they also are going to be organising, putting up kind of posters um with the message um pro-vax, um, um pro-union, anti-fascist. So yeah, I think that's just um something um to note. I mean, in terms of like. Because basically, right now in this current current conditions of kind of lockdown, um, typically you know when a far right kind of threat has been kind of posed, we would be counter protesting them on the streets. Um, but of course, the reality is, in some sense, we're given that we're in a sort of lockdown and we're we're in a kind of public in a, in a pandemic. It's sort of like yeah, the ba- the basic thing is appears to be you know stay at home, etc. Um, and so on. So there's not necessarily uh, a kind of movement of of counter-protesting these fascists at this stage, although that could change in the future, especially as um, restrictions ease and um, things start to gradually kind of reopen. Uh, and again, I guess some of the other events I kind of want to note is um, on on um, on Monday that on Monday the seventh. On Saturday, um, Saturday, September the 25th, there's going to be an online um, speaker, Take Action for Afghanistan and Support Afghan Women's Resistance, and that's going to be happening at 3pm. And that, and that event is being organised by... by um, That is an event that is being organised by um, Green, Green Left, and it's hosted in conjunction with the Australian Kurdish Women's Movement and Sydney and Newcastle Socialist Alliance branches. So that's going to be happening at... Um, Three o'clock um, tomorrow online via, via Zoom. Then the next kind of event um, to sort of note is um, on Sunday, 
um, September the 26th, there's going to be an online forum, Escape from Manus. Javiet Alum speaks on his new book, and that's going to be happening at 11 a.m. On Monday, September the 27th, there's going to be an online forum, The Politics of Solidarity and Anti-Racism in Settler Colonial Contexts. And then on Wednesday, September the 29th, there's going to be an online book club, um, Jeffrey Robertson on Human Rights. And then on Thursday, September the 30th, there is going to be an online film screening organised by the Venezuelan Solidarity Campaign, and that is going to be um, online film screening Chavez on Thursday, September the 30th. And then on Friday, um, October the 1st, there's going to be a day of action for Australia's 2030 climate target um, from 7pm. And then on Monday, um, October the 4th, there's going to be online solidarity, defend the right to protest at 9am. And then, um, yeah, and then the next kind of event I want to highlight is the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2021 conference, which is going to be System Change, Not Climate Change, happening from October the 22nd, from 7pm to October the 24th. And that's going to be a mostly online kind of, um, obviously a most uh, online kind of conference, um, at kind of featuring kind of two days of panels and workshops featuring local and international kind of speakers. So yeah, um, hope listeners, um, so, yeah, those are, I guess, um, some of the example kind of events that are coming up soon. Anyway, um, that's, I think, it for the Green Left Activist calendar. Um, I was thinking possibly, probably for the next four minutes before we go into our um, our next interview, I thought I might as well play a bit of a uh, play a bit of a song. So I'll just go play. Um, I think I will play "Breathe In and Breathe Out" by Filma Plum. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Oh, 
Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, we're very happy. Um, we have actually our form, um, well, current, I mean, you can refer to me really as our presenter for Green Left Radio, even though he's not currently presenting at the moment because he's um, working right now. Um, but we have um, Zane, our very own Zane Alcorn, on the program today, who is um, a rank and file CFMEU um, member and construction worker. And so we have him. Um, we're having him on the program to have a bit of a discussion, especially in the context of all the events that are kind of happening in the past four days, which we're speaking about um, in at the start of the program in terms of these 
anti-lockdown far-right protest, which essentially was started off, you know, outside um, the CFMU office and, and so on. So, yeah, good morning, Zane. How's it going? Good to be back. And uh, this is Felix here as well. Zane, how are you going? Oh, good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, yeah, obviously this is the big news story of the week. It's been, you know, fascinating and horrifying to see all of the protests taking over parts of the city and also the police brutality. What's your perspective on how things started and, and what's going on there with the construction workers and, and the protests? Well, it's a big uh, question. Um, I guess there's there's probably two things. <clears throat> the um, One of the things that's really concerning is we know that from, from reading about uh, the history of fascist movements and how they organise, that one of the main sources of resistance to fascist organisations is trade unions, the mass organisations of the working class. And so fascists will consciously try and build a base in the trade unions and will try and get in there and disrupt and attack and try and disable and, um, you know, bring down the, the unions and hobble them as part of removing a barrier to build their, um, you know, horrible uh, organisations building their power. So um, the CFMEU, obviously it's widely regarded as one of the strongest and most militant unions and that that dates back many decades to the history of the union and the BLF Green Bands and um, yeah, that, that sort of strength and militancy of the CFMEU is built up over and consolidated over many decades. Um, so we know that the, these uh, sort of far-right and conspiracist anti-vaxxer types have um, been wanting to target the CFMEU officers. Um, so they called a protest there that was going to happen on the weekend. And then, as we know, the police set this really, from a civil liberties perspective, a really troubling precedent where they've shut down all public transport to stop this protest happening. I don't, I don't like the anti-vaxxers, but what we're seeing at the moment is the, the state and the anti-vaxxers feeding off each other, and the police are using these ever more, like, crazy psycho weapons, like their pepper guns and these tear gas cannon things, uh, and shutting down public transport, shutting off the city. That's a really dangerous precedent, I think, for when we're getting back to having big union rallies, climate rallies, all that sort of stuff. Um, so a rally that was going to um, target the CFMEU office last Saturday, which was organised by forces outside of the CFMEU, which the CFMEU did not endorse and, and came out publicly saying, we don't endorse this rally. That rally didn't happen on the Saturday. And then it happened, it kind of got shifted forward and happened on the Monday. Now, this coincided with um, a big outbreak some reports in the media are up to one in eight um, cases in the current COVID outbreak in Victoria can be traced back to construction sites. There's some debate about that, but I think it is fair to say that there's a fair bit of transmission happening on um, construction sites. Um, so late last week, the Victorian government, I think, you know, really sort of captains called, rushed, non-consultative kind of way... I, I, there's, there's probably reasons why they did it in this haphazard way, but 
um, they brought in these two changes for construction to, to try and, as a Band-Aid almost, fight the these outbreaks that are happening on construction sites, which was the closure of the tea rooms and um, in implementing mandatory vaccination. And that was all to be done within one week. So every construction worker in Victoria had one week to get vaxxed. And if you didn't, you're no longer allowed to work in construction. Now, those things added into the explosive situation. I'm really yeah. interested in the, the dynamic where you've got the far-right anti-vaxxer conspiracy um, movement, which is, we've seen it manifested in a few different ways, like the like sort of the Trump-type attitude. Um, and you've, you have the rank-and-file union construction workers, and they're in opposition to the the demands and the the actions of these um, far-right people who are basically attacking the CPMU and trashing the, the front of their, their office. Um, and and uh, you've also got the state government who are... They're forcing um, a mandatory vaccination in a sort of like a, like a very sudden... Um, Unexpected way, which has shocked a lot, shocked a lot of the people in the in, in construction, and um, I'm not sure how much the union was involved in this decision. Um, could you sort of like help to maybe untangle because you you have you're a worker in the construction industry and you're a member of CFMEU, so you you probably have some perspective of how much of this is an organic feeling of construction workers and how much is being influenced by the far right here. It is. Could you help untangle that a little bit for us? And where, where, yeah, these, so, where these sentiments are coming from? Um, I, I think it is a complex issue, and so I'll try and untangle it a bit, but it's, it's inherently difficult to untangle. Um, so I think part of it is last year the, um, the CFMEU formed this united front with the Master Builders Association, um, the National Electrical Blah Blah Association, whatever, like all the peaks of industry bodies, uh, and announced that they would be pushing to keep the industry open through the pandemic. I wrote an article for Green Left at the time, and and there was a lot of people commenting on the CFMEU Facebook at the time, saying this is a really problematic step that the union is taking because the message, basically, when you boil it all down, was your lucrative paycheck on a union site is worth the risk that you are going to subject yourself and your family to by continuing to go to work. Now, the CFMEU did implement um, pretty rigorous safety measures on building sites and um, credit where it's due. Even WorkSafe have, have acknowledged that the big union sites are the gold standard of COVID safety control measures. So I'm not trying to say that the CFMEU has not put an effort into um, trying to make building sites as safe as possible. But I think the position of the union that the way that we are going to kind of protect your livelihood through the pandemic is to push to keep the industry open, it really was a problem because traditionally the position of the CFMEU has been safety first, your safety comes first, above all other considerations on the job. I don't think this position of we will use our political clout to try and push to keep the industry open is consistent with that. So that, that's a factor. Um, and it comes as part of the long term. I think 
a lot of social democratic political parties like the Labor Party in recent decades and a lot of trade unions have stepped back from taking a stance on social issues like around refugees, climate, uh, speaking out against, for example, the fascist sort of mobilisations that were happening five years ago, like Reclaim Australia, and they, they kind of they have this small target idea. We will just focus on protecting workers' pay and conditions. Uh, strategically, there is some logic behind that. Rather than, you know, we, we want to make this a broad church. We, want to, we don't want to have barriers to people joining the union. There is an argument to that, but I think you can go too far in that direction and you can create a vacuum where the union is not um, building a culture amongst its membership and showing leadership that, no, we are, you know, we are a socially-minded organisation that cares about society and wants to steer it, and steer it in a progressive direction. So I think that's been a problem over the last... As the, as the pandemic has rolled on, people are frustrated by the lockdowns and, and people are sort of... Um, in, in many cases, people have lost their job in construction or in other industries and the, the income support is not sufficient... Um, and yeah, yeah, I, think... I de- definitely can see that you, if, if for construction workers, they get, they, they work very hard and they get a lot of overtime if they, if they're in a job where, which is consistent and that they can, they can get the extra hours and a lot of them, they really do need to pay their bills and they're worried about, um, the whole industry shutting down and then not getting the support from the government in order to pay them to, to not be at work um i can definitely see their perspective well do you how do you feel that we can show solidarity with the workers and urge them to get vaccinated and to follow the health advice here even even the way that the state government's been quite heavy-handed about their messaging and and you know they're sort of mandating the vaccine and and not being very communicative but from from the the ground up from the rank and file perspective what can we do to to encourage workers to get vaccinated, to get out of this pandemic and to and to stay healthy? Uh, at the moment, uh, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have organised this um, campaign or, or this little social media thing where um, construction workers are being encouraged to hold up a sign which says, don't be a scab, get the jab or if that's a bit provocative, that message, um, you know, show solidarity with health workers, get vaccinated. Because uh, I guess what I was getting to there is I think a lot of construction workers have, unfortunately, or, or actually a fringe of construction workers, actually I think a majority of CFMEU members in particular have been vaccinated and do support public health measures. But there's clearly a fringe who have really gone off the garden path and have, have been um, able to be sort of drawn into the tractor beam of these really reactionary anti-vaxxer forces. So uh, at the moment, this is kind of grassroots um, campaign amongst some rank-and-file construction workers, not just CFMEU, but also ETU plumbers, where you hold up a little sign that says, don't be a scab, get the jab, um, stand in solidarity with healthcare workers, because that's what it's all about. It's the lockdown's frustrating, but at the end of the day, it's a pandemic. People are dying from this virus, and um, it's really important to maximise the uptake of vaccination 
so not flooding our hospitals with with uh, pandemic victims. But yeah, I think just to just to finish the or, or to to get towards the end point here, it's really difficult for um, progressives at the moment because in any other situation, if a, if a bunch of far right agitators were able to pick off a section of the uh, rank and file of a union and go and smash up their office, there would be a big response immediately. But because of the public health measures and because we don't want to create a super spreader event, I think there's a lot of people all across Melbourne right now who are itching to respond and get out there and do as we have done in recent years and counter-mobilise against these far-right idiots. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point, that there's no opportunity for us who really are totally committed to doing what we can to stop the virus. There's no opportunity for us to um, to, to create a counterbalance to the protests that don't care about this stuff. Mm. Azra, do you have so, any final quick thoughts before we're almost out of time here for the program? But uh, if you want to... Well, I think it, it can't be left up to the far left. And in recent years, it has mainly been far left, socialist groups, anarchists, confronting fascists. Um, this resurgence now around anti-vax stuff is really concerning. It can't just be left up to the far left, but I also think actually a lot of mainstream people who've stood back in the union movement and, in, and, you know, in the broader kind of progressive side of politics in recent years and haven't really mobilised against Reclaim Australia and that, they're going to want to get out and confront this now. So I think there's a lot of potential to build a very big, united response in the streets as soon as it's safe to do to, to do so. And, and I think that's really important for us to all be working towards now because this attack on the CFMEU, it's a, and it's an, an attack on all unions, and, and it's a dangerous precedent that needs to be confronted very decisively. Great. Okay, then. Thanks for that, Zane. So... Um... Yeah, that's uh, Zane Alcorn, who's a previous presenter of ours and a construction worker and a rank and file member of CFMEU. Hi. Well, thank you very much, Zane, for being on our program. Cheers, comrades. Keep up the good work. Cheers. All right. As sort of um, Felix kind of said before, that we we're just speaking to our very own kind of Zane, um, who's also a construction worker and rank and file CFMEU member. So, yeah. Um, which Felix all kind of directed said as well. So um, now um, I guess we're, we're getting a bit to the end of the program. I guess any sort of, fi- I guess some final kind of comments to kind of make is um, like to kind of thank all our listeners for, I guess, tuning in this kind of week. Um, I also think that, you know, um, it's quite clear, I think, as kind of Zane kind of said, that, you know, it's um, when it comes to dealing with this growing sort of far-right kind of threat, um, because I think, you know, to put this a bit in in perspective, internationally there is this growing sort of anti-vax um, movement, um, which is... Going, which is which has an overall overarching kind of far right kind of character, especially in countries like Germany and France, where there have been massive kind of protests against lockdowns and public health restrictions. And of course, the irony is, I mean, they're they're campaigning against lockdowns, but also campaigning against vaccines, which is sort of like a bit of a contradictory thing because the actual only way out of lockdowns essentially is through vaccines um, and, you know, the only the only way that we're going to actually defeat this pandemic is actually through vaccines. So there's this really bit of this convoluted kind of thing going on here where... Yeah, they've got no context. They can't think... They, you know, they're not thinking ahead, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. So they're trying to tap into this certain sentiment because people, yeah, there are people who are, you know, 
um, suffering the brunt of lockdowns, especially disproportionately working class people with these, um, with these social restrictions. And they're attempting to kind of tap into the sort of disconnect content with that, but then trying to push them into a sort of completely anti public health kind of direction, which I think is um, completely um, despicable. And I think, yeah, we ha- as left-wing people, we have to make a stand against it. But as, as kind of Zhang kind of said, it's going to need to be more than just the left, you know. Broader social organisations, trade unions are going to need to lead this fight and going to need to speak out every kind of step of the way So, in order to kind of challenge this movement at its core. Right. Well, I'd like to thank all our, again, as I said, I'd like to thank all our listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio and um, stay tuned for, um, I think, Earth Matters is going to be, uh, is going to be playing. And, and yeah, but I'd like to thank and um, keep it, keep it strong. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Good to talk to you, everyone. Say so. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap